0: Please turn your attention to Genesis 43 as we continue our series, The Life of Joseph. We come this morning to Genesis 43. Let me read these verses for us, and then we're going to spend some time meditating on them together. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, the Father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly you will not see my face again unless your brother is with me. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we would have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey. Some spices and myrrh. Some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you. For you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also, and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house. Slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Then the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and to seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon, because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and they said. And then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant our father is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there after he had washed his face he came out and controlling himself said serve the food they served him by himself the brothers by themselves and the egyptians who ate with him by themselves because egyptians could not eat with hebrews for that is detestable to egyptians the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest and they looked at each other in astonishment when portions were served to them From Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and your word. We know in these moments you use your word and your spirit to speak to us. We pray that we would have ears that hear and hearts that hear and respond. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little recap on last week. We were in Genesis 42 when the brothers of Joseph make their first trip to Egypt to buy food in the famine, and they begin walking down this road of reconciliation with Joseph. In Genesis 43, the chapter before us today, it's the second trip of Joseph's brothers to Egypt because their food ran out. So they go down again to get more food in the famine, and they continue walking down this road of reconciliation with Joseph. One of the key words in this chapter is the Hebrew word shalom, which is usually translated peace. And when we think of this word peace, usually we think of absence of conflict. Peace in wartime, right, is a ceasefire. That's how we typically think of the word peace. But the Hebrew word shalom has has a much richer meaning than that. It is a word that means completeness, or soundness, or welfare, or well-being. Neil Plantiga, a theologian at Calvin University, says that the Old Testament prophets dreamed of the shalom that God would bring, this wholeness that God would bring in these images. They dreamed of a time when deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in streets, and from men on ships. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. That is a wonderful picture of shalom. And this word shalom is mentioned four times in this chapter. In verse 23, Joseph Stewart says to the brothers, it's all right, don't be afraid. Literally, he says shalom to you peace to you. Don't be afraid. In verse 27, when Joseph inquires about the welfare of his brothers and his father, he uses this word shalom. How is your shalom? Verse 28, when the brothers report that their father is alive and well, they use this word shalom, this this word that means richness and welfare and and, 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 uh, and doing well. Verse 43, in other words, is a picture of of how God is rebuilding the shalom of this family, restoring their welfare and their well-being. In this chapter alone, I point out, this family goes from fear and anxiety at the beginning to feasting and rejoicing together at the end. I would suggest that we are a people in need of shalom. Not just an absence of conflict, but this flourishing of life this wholeness and this delight we live in a fallen world which means sin has vandalized Shalom sin has vandalized our relationship with God and our relationship with other people sin has vandalized our work sin has vandalized all of creation such that it is now groaning under the weight of the fall Post-pandemic, we are told there is a mental health crisis going on. There, there, there are pressures from without and within, anxieties that we're all facing. In our 30s and 40s, we're told we now live in the sandwiched generation because we have responsibilities to our kids simultaneously with our aging parents. I was listening to a podcast this week that said we're better called the panini generation because we're not just sandwiched, we're pressed. We're pressed in from all sides. My friends, that's why we need shalom. Genesis 43 shows us that God is at work to bring shalom to his people. That's his aim in our lives. That's his redemptive aim in our lives, is to bring this wholeness and delight and flourishing to our lives. And in particular, Genesis 43 shows us how God is at work to bring shalom to each individual member in this family. And so what I want to do in our time together is point out the shalom that God brings to Jacob, the shalom that God brings to Judah, and the shalom that God brings to Joseph. God's at work bringing shalom to the lives of his people. First, let's consider shalom for Jacob. One thing that shatters uh, Jacob's shalom is his favoritism of Joseph and Benjamin. And I suggest to you at the beginning of this series, if you want to blow up your family, do this, pick one of your kids and make them your favorite and let the other kids know that this is your favorite. And then buy an expensive gift for your favorite and nothing for the rest of your, your other kids and see what happens. You will blow up your family. Jacob picks Joseph as his favorite and he gives him a robe of many colors. And of course you know what happens. The brothers begin to resent Joseph and hate him to the point they sell him into slavery and break the shalom of this family. And so as a replacement, Jacob chooses Benjamin as his new favorite. They are both, Joseph and Benjamin, sons of Rachel, his favored wife. You see the pattern of Jacob. When Jacob tells his sons to go back to Egypt to buy more food, Judah reminds him of what the man in charge said. You will not see my face again unless you bring your youngest son with you, your youngest brother with you. And so Judah says, if you will send Benjamin with us, we'll go. If, if you won't send him with us, it's not even worth it. We won't go. Uh, Jacob says, his response, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? No, he says this. It's not just trouble for Benjamin. It's trouble for Jacob. It is a threat to him because... Benjamin is his treasure, and he will not let him go. In the last verse of Genesis 42, Jacob says, My son will not go down there with you. His brother's dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to Benjamin on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. In other words, Jacob is ready to let Simeon, his other son, languish in jail because he doesn't want to let go of Benjamin. Benjamin is clearly his favorite and I would suggest to you his idol. See, essentially what what Jacob says, he says, if I lose Benjamin, my head will go down to the grave in sorrow. Literally, down to Sheol, this this shadowy place of hopelessness after death. What what Jacob is saying is, if I lose Benjamin, I wanna die. Life is not worth living without Benjamin. I I lose all hope and all joy if I lose Benjamin. I would suggest to you that's idolatry language. That's making someone or something more important than God. An, An idol is the one thing you look to for life and joy and hope. I would suggest to you that Benjamin is Jacob's idol. And the problem, of course, with making anything other than God an idol is that idols fail because they're not God. They're not dependable like God. They don't have the power and grace of God. And so if you base your shalom on anything other than God, your shalom will eventually be shattered. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 43. Jacob bases his shalom on an unreliable foundation, and it's shattering. And so for Jacob's shalom to be restored, he's got to let go of Benjamin as his idol. You see, and put his trust in God. And it's interesting because God in his providence is working on Jacob's heart. In his providence, Jacob has to let go of Joseph first. And now he has to let go of Benjamin. He gets to that point. Jacob recognizes, if it must be, then bring these generous gifts with you down to Egypt and take Benjamin and go. He says in verse 14, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob is putting his trust in God Almighty with an asterisk. He's putting his trust in God Almighty, but he's reluctant. It's with resignation. If I am bereaved, then I'm, I will be, be, be bereaved. Jacob trusts in God with reluctance, with reluctance. A sense of resignation but of course his trust in God is not in vain because God has a bigger purpose than Jacob can ever imagine when he trusts God and gives up Benjamin he doesn't lose him forever he gets Benjamin back and Simeon and wonder of wonders Joseph as well this is the Shalom for Jacob and and for Jacob to experience Shalom God has to rescue him from his idols Idolatry, of course, can be subtle and very powerful. And if you want to see a story of idolatry writ large, watch Breaking Bad. I suggest to you that that is the the power of idolatry writ large. Here's Walter White. He starts as a high school chemistry teacher. And over the course of the show, becomes a drug dealer cooking crystal meth from an RV parked in the desert on the run from the law. And you say, how in the world does this happen? You've seen the show, it's because Walter White gets a cancer diagnosis, and he wants to provide money for his family before he dies. And that's not a bad desire. But family and money become so important to Walter White, an idol, that he's willing to do anything for them. Even cook crystal meth from an RV in the desert, all for the sake of his family. And the irony, of course, in this is that in the end, Walter White ends up losing his family. The, uh, the, the very people he, was, he went out to, to save. He admits at the end of the story that what he started to do for his family, by the end he was doing for himself. He says, I discovered something I was good at, and it made me feel good. But by the end, Walter White has lost everything. He has lost his shalom because he's worshipped an idol. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate. And all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. He says, of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good it involves a loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Do you hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? He's saying put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both together. I'd suggest to you that the choice before Jacob is to put God first or Benjamin first. And if he puts second things first, he'll lose both. I wonder if anyone here is putting second things first. If there's, any, if there's someone or something outside of God that we're clinging to, we won't let go, because that's our true hope and our true joy. See, these are subtle and powerful idolatries. Genesis 43 shows us the most subtle, most powerful idolatries are for good things. Our children, our spouses, marriage, jobs, cars, homes, See, because no one challenges us when we we, we make these our idolatries because everyone is idolizing their kids. We're we're all centering our lives around our kids. So no one's going to challenge you on this. And on the one hand, I want to say it's great to love our kids. It's great to sacrifice for them. But when God takes a back seat to them, it's become an idolatry. When their birthday parties become more important than God. When their sports become more important than God. When getting into college becomes more important than God. It's become an idolatry. And Genesis 43 is telling us that true shalom cannot be in our children or any other idol, as good as it may be. Because if you put second things first, you lose first and second things. True shalom rests in God. And when Jacob finally trusts God Almighty, he gets the second things thrown in. Benjamin comes back, Simeon comes back, and wonder of wonders, Joseph himself comes back. That's a shalom for Jacob. Secondly, let's look at the shalom for Judah. The thing that shatters Judah's shalom is his self-centeredness. And we have to go back for a moment just to consider this. In Genesis 37, we looked at at the beginning of this series, Judah is the one brother who comes up with a plan to sell Joseph off into slavery. You remember this moment? The brothers throw Joseph into the pit because Reuben convinces them, don't kill him. So they throw him into a pit and it's Judah that comes up with this idea. He says, what will we gain if we kill him? Let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders and we'll make some money off of him. In other words, Judah values personal gain over his own brother and shatters Shalom. Then in the very next chapter, Genesis 38, we're told that Judah leaves his family, moves down to Canaan, Judah has been raised and taught not to marry a Canaanite woman because they were Israelite's spiritual enemy and they would tempt him away, but he does it anyway. Genesis 38 puts it very abruptly. He sees a woman, takes her, sleeps with her. She conceives, suggesting that it's in his lust that he he takes her. He has an eye for a beautiful woman and he takes what he, he wants. His oldest son grows up and also, no surprise, marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Genesis 38 tells us that his oldest son dies, but Judah in his self-centeredness is unwilling to carry out his levirate responsibilities and allow his younger sons to marry Tamar to keep their brother's name alive. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Knowing Judah's proclivities and weaknesses, she disguises herself as a prostitute and sits alongside the road that she knows Judah always walks along. And true to form, Judah approaches her for business and unwittingly impregnates his own daughter-in-law. Judah is about to put Tamar to death for adultery when it becomes clear she's having a baby. And she proves the baby is his, and Judah is a broken man. He is guilt-stricken. He realizes he has wronged his own daughter-in-law. His two sons are dead because of their wickedness. And Judah is a broken man. His shalom has been shattered by his own self-centeredness. But my friends, that's not the end of the story. Because God is at work changing Judah's heart. And the evidence is in how Judah persuades Jacob to let them take Benjamin down to Egypt. I don't know if you heard it. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel, or Jacob his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life." Here's Judah. He used to think only about himself. Now thinking about the welfare of the whole family, concerned that we and you and our children will live and not die. And here's Judah who didn't hesitate to sell Joseph off into slavery. Now putting his own life on the line to protect his younger brother, Benjamin. Judah's self-sacrificial heart will become even more clear in Genesis 44. In other words, God is working for the shalom of Judah. And so he has to heal him of his self-centeredness. It's kind of like Jesus in Mark 5, healing the demon-possessed man. Mark 5 comes right on the heels of Jesus coming the storm. And I think the suggestion here is that Jesus can not only heal uh, storms on the outside, but storms on the inside. And this demon possessed man has a storm on the inside. He's pictured in Mark as hopeless, uncontrollable, socially isolated, self-destructive, animalistic, irredeemable. No one can subdue this man. He is one of those people that society gives up on. And so they consign him to living among the tombs where he is not a threat to anyone but himself. But Jesus goes there specifically to meet this man because after he meets him, he leaves. Jesus goes there to heal this man, demonstrating that there is no place he will not go. There is no power he cannot subdue. And there's no person he cannot redeem. And after he drives out the legion of demons and calms the inner storm, this man is clothed and sitting in his right mind. It's dramatic. For years this man went without clothes and now he is dressed. For years he was a madman crying out and cutting himself. And now he's self-controlled and of clear mind. And when this former demoniac asked Jesus to go with him, Jesus says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Why? Because Jesus is restoring him to community. Think about this. This man has not seen his family in years. This is a man who has been living in social isolation for years. And Jesus restores him to himself and to his community. He is restoring his shalom. And this is what God is doing for Judah in Genesis 43. Calming this inner storm of self-centeredness. And restore shalom. I wonder if any of us have a storm on the inside that is shattering our shalom. Maybe like Judah, it is a storm of self-statterness that is shattering our family and our relationships. Perhaps it's a a storm of pride that is shattering all our relationships and our family. Perhaps it's a storm of anxiety or stress that is shattering our health and our peace. Perhaps it's a storm of lust that is shattering our peace and purity. My friends, the good news is that God is at work for the shalom of his people. It's not always instantaneous as Jesus with the demon-possessed man. Sometimes it takes years, as in Judah's case. But here is God's redemptive purpose. His purpose in your life and my life is to restore shalom. To restore flourishing and wholeness and delight. So there's shalom for Jacob and there's shalom for Judah. And then lastly, there's shalom for Joseph. The one thing, of course, that shatters Joseph's shalom is what's done to him when his own brothers sell him off in slavery. And age 18 or 17, at age 17, he is separated from his family and carried off to a foreign land. And so one of the main plot tensions of this story is whether Joseph will be reconciled to his family. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that God is providentially at work to heal this family and to restore their shalom. He sends a famine of all things that allows Joseph to rise up to power in Egypt, to be in a place to save his family. And that same famine is what drives the brothers to Egypt, so they can be reconciled. God not only brings Joseph and his brothers together, he is working to change their hearts. Joseph's heart, for all his brothers have done to him, is not bitter towards them. He doesn't seek revenge. Look at what happens when he sees his brothers coming from a distance with Benjamin. He says to the steward of his house, "Uh, take these men to my house, prepare a feast. We're going to, I'm going to feast with my brothers. When he sees Benjamin, he blesses him and he's so deeply moved. He has excused himself to weep in private. It contrasts with how his brothers responded when they saw Joseph coming from a distance, they plotted to kill him. But Joseph doesn't return evil for evil. The brothers waiting for Joseph at his house are fearful that they're going to receive punishment for the silver in their bags from the first visit, and so they plead ignorance. They plead for forgiveness. And the steward, remember, says, peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God has given you treasure. And Of course, it's a contrast with the brothers in Genesis 37 who are so envious of Joseph, they can't speak peace to him. They can't speak shalom, that's what it says to Joseph. But Joseph does not return evil for evil. And through his steward, he speaks peace to these brothers who have have offended him. And then when Joseph returns home and serves his brothers his sumptuous meal, again, it's a contrast. When the brothers threw Joseph into a pit, you know what they did while he was in a pit? They had a meal together without him. You know what Joseph does? He doesn't return evil for evil. He plans a sumptuous feast with his brothers. God is not only changing Joseph's heart, he's also changing the brothers' hearts by his providence. When Joseph meets them, the brothers present gifts and bow down to him. Of course, they don't know who Joseph is at that moment. They don't realize that that dream long ago is being fulfilled, that they would bow down one day to Joseph. But they're growing in humility. When they come to feast with Joseph, they discover that they are seated in order of their ages. Again, they don't know it's Joseph, so they're astonished. They look at each other and they say, how? Joseph and and Benjamin, they notice, has been given a portion five times as much as any of the other brothers, and it's another test to see if the brothers have changed. Because remember, it's a contrast. When Joseph received preferential treatment, what happened? They were envious and they began to hate Joseph and it it blew up the shalom of his family. Now Benjamin gets preferential treatment and it doesn't bother them. And they don't get angry. The last verse is they feasted and drank freely in Joseph's house. You see the brothers are getting this taste of shalom, of flourishing and delight because God is at work to restore their shalom through reconciliation. I recently read a story about a friendship between Stacy Marshall and Betty Mosley. Beginning of this story, they're chatting over coffee in Stacey Marshall's farmhouse in Dirttown Valley, Georgia. And on the surface, this seems like a meeting of good friends. But there's something that makes this friendship very unique. Betty Mosley's great-great-great-grandmother was enslaved by Marshall's great-great-great-great-grandparents in the same community 150 years earlier. In 2017, Stacy Marshall was cleaning out the family farmhouse when she discovered an 1860 slave schedule in a boot box. And it confirmed what her grandfather had told her, that her great-great-great-grandfather had purchased seven people, including a wet nurse named Hester. And Stacy Marshall started struggling with shame, even though she was generations removed. And then two weeks after this discovery, a local historian researching genealogy discovered something even more arresting. Hester's great-great-granddaughter was Betty Mosley. Stacy Marshall and Betty Mosley were completely aware of this, unaware of this history. But when she found out, Betty immediately called Stacy to say, I just want you to know that this doesn't change the way I love you. But he says the way to heal racial wounds is you've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Stacy says the same. The Mosleys, Betty and her husband, and I keep our relationship rooted in what is our strongest bond our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, as these two friends meet for coffee on quiet mornings, Stacy says, We could not have written this story. It feels miraculous. Betty says, even though my great-great-grandmother was born a slave, I was born free. Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. My friends, God is at work to bring shalom to his people. He rescues us from our idolatry. He heals our inner storms. He reconciles our relationships. And sometimes the way he does this is mysterious in his providence, in workings we don't quite understand. William Cooper, the English hymn writer in the 1700s, who struggled lifelong with chronic depression, put it this way, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. God works to bring shalom for his people. And there are times that we don't know what God is doing. Maybe it's a frowning providence. but William Cooper says behind that frowning providence is a smiling face. God is at work to bring shalom to us, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our shalom. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' death in our place on the cross that makes peace with God and opens the door to peace with others and peace with ourselves. Because Jesus, rescues us from our idolatry. He heals our inner storms. And he reconciles our relationships because there is no place he will not go. There's no power he cannot subdue. And there's no person he cannot redeem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people in need of shalom we live in a broken world and we have broken lives and broken families and we have broken hearts thank you for the good news of Genesis 43 that you are a God who loves shalom and your redemptive purpose in our lives is to bring that shalom that flourishing that delight that wholeness so Lord help us to entrust ourselves to your hands to make you our first thing so that we can enjoy second things as well. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.